Jerome, for those of you who are watching on the uh, simulcast, we're going to begin in chapter 13, or sorry, chapter 3, excuse me, verse 14, and we'll go through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 24. So if you could please join me, I'll be reading from the ESV version, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothing. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You may be seated. What a wonderful time to be a Christ follower with so many questions uh, going on around us that we have a firm and true anchor in our Lord Jesus. And that's why I think the first few chapters of the Bible, just the first couple of pages, deserve so much attention that they give us a firm bearing for our lives, that they anchor us, if you will. I very much agree with the statement that every person, part of what it means to be a human, is to be an interpreter. That as we go through the world, right, and we experience things and see things and process things, we say we like a grid to ask, to say, what is, where does this belong? Where am I in all this? I think one way we put it is that I think you could distill it down to really four, four words, origins, meaning, morality and destiny and if you think of those you say they might not put them in those terms but all of us have questions in in that area so origins where did we come from are we a product of the soup meaning is there a purpose to my life i mean here i am i have another day what ought i do is is there something i'm supposed to do a lot of us are on that quest or morality who gets to define right and wrong is that just socially constructed? Is it something that we feel as long as we have a consensus? Or is it anchored in namely a transcendent moral lawgiver, namely a God? And then profoundly destiny. Is there a place I'm going when I die? 
What's going to happen when my day comes? And I think that in just the opening passages of the Bible, you have profound statements in this area, don't you? You say, where do we come from? A good God. He made everything. Is there a meaning? Yes, I'm to be his ambassador, to be his representative, to work, right? To cultivate an environment, to make a civilization. Who defines morality? Well, he does. Destiny that I'm to be with him forevermore. See how many of us scramble for those and write in the opening pages of our holy writ that we get that. And I hope at the very least what you've seen is that we've gone about, even in very messy times with a pandemic and an election and a lot of uncertainty, you say, our anchor is here, that we have clear answers to these questions. They tell us which way we ought to go. And I think we started two weeks ago, and the Bible captures very well why so much of what we observe really is good. Say, look at a day like today, gorgeous. I love Northeast Ohio. Say, what a day. You gaze upon God's order. You say, there's much good. See, even when you look around and you think of your friends, you see there's much good in people, but also you'll turn on the news and say there's much bad in people. Say, we, we have good and bad in just about everything. Is there an explanation for that? Say, why have things gone so wrong? Say, we understand that everything's been made good and right by God, but then we say, well, the world's quite not what it ought to be. Uh, what, what sense do we make of this? I think the story's captured very well by uh, a Swedish chemist in the 19th century. Say, so, you know, there was a young uh, Swedish chemist who has over 350 patents to his name, and the one he's most famous for, we now know, is dynamite. And the Swedish chemist developed dynamite so that it might help humans, right, to blast holes through mountains so that we could have trains and roadways and things like that. He thought dynamite would be a great invention to help human prosperity. But what did we do? We said we used dynamite also for war, that it killed a lot of people. This young Swedish chemist, right, his name was Alfred Nobel. And Nobel, upon his death, unbeknownst to his family, but Queeth his considerable estate towards a prize, right? Actually, a number of prizes. Prizes for those who would help humans prosper, to, to foster peace in the world. And I think in Nobel, you say that's one story that captures so well, really, this, the story of every person. That we look at the loftiness, the ability of the human mind, so nimble to think about how we can help each other, to invent new things, to be creative, but also that side of us that's so very dark and sinister, that wants to take each other out. It's to the 17th century mathematician Pascal, right, who wrote this. What sort of freak then is man? How novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigious. Judge of all things, feeble earthworm. Repository of truth, sink of doubt and air. Glory and refuse of the universe. Man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach us then that there is in man some great principle of greatness and some great principle of wretchedness. See, Pascal is right on that line. Of course, working within the Christian framework, he says, I observe a lot of people close to me. I see a wonderful ability of them. Say, it is the great glory, the great crown of creation. That's not lost. And yet other sides of us look at how we behave. It's like Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll, right? He says, well, I was doomed to the point of shipwreck when I made this discovery that man is not one, but two. Of course, what Jekyll means is that there's a duplicity in all of us to say, yes, we're able to do wonderful things and to create and build each other up and look out for one another, but also there's this side of us that's so inwardly focused. Is there a fixed point, an interpretive grid, a lens that explains this well? We say, yeah, there is. It's Genesis chapter 3. 
really the first few chapters of Genesis, but Genesis 3, say, what goes terribly wrong? And you say, well, I don't know about this. I I have a test question for you. Say your non-Christian friends, uh, I think there's a very straightforward test question you can ask them about our existence, and it's this. Do you think everything's as it ought to be? And I don't think anybody answers that question yes. You say, all of us have a sense that things aren't as they ought to be. Now, we have different means by how we think things ought to be right, but all of us have this deep sense that you say things could be better. We long for more fairness or more justice or less pain or why does this such a good person, even a godly person, get a terminal illness? You say, all these big, and we could go on and on, say things are not quite as they ought to be. How are they going to be put right? What went wrong? For the what went wrong part, we say we know this. If you're, again, a student of the Bible, say we call this the fall. That God makes everything just right, that he puts us in balance with him and dependent upon him. And what we've done, each one of us, is we say we don't need God. All we need is ourselves. We talked two weeks ago about what it meant to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You say, that's a very clumsy name for a tree. What does that mean? You say, well, I think what it means is that God gives us his law so that we can be dependent creatures. That's who we are. We need God. Uh, he's our reference point. All the, the, the whole creation is his theater of glory. We need him. And what we've done, our first parents did, and what each one of us has done, is said, God, we don't need you. What we need is ourselves. I want to do life on my own. I want to be able to define right and wrong. I certainly won't want to be thought of, think of myself as a dependent, needy creature. No thanks, I'll go it alone. And the consequences of that have been severe ever since. And so we'll spend the first part of our time together looking just where the pressure points are on these consequences for each one of us, but ultimately then to turn to an idea of hope. So firstly, you'll notice that what are the a big consequence of the fall, you get it clearly in the punishment to the woman, the punishment to Eve in verse 16, is that there's now going to be tension in our intimate relationships. If you remember back in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, how God set up marriage from the foundation. He said, look, there's a husband made first to be the spiritual leader of his home, to represent God, and the the wife was to help him out of himself, right? So that there's a complementary relationship where both the husband and the wife would flourish in their roles. But then in verse 16, part 2, you get a very interesting clause, and by far this is our most difficult clause in our passage today, but we're told this, that Eve, the first uh, wife, the first mother, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. You say, now this is a consequence of the fall, so what does this mean? Some over the centuries have gone the way of saying, well, this desire, is it emotional or sexual? You say, I don't think that's what's happening here, but rather what is, is to say that those roles that God set up, those complementary roles, right, where there's mutual edification, have now become distorted. That instead of the husband leading in a godly way and the wife helping to that end and both flourishing, that the the wife's desire for that will be contrary. Her, Her desire will be to dominate her husband, and then he, in turn, will patriarchically impose his will on her. You say, well, how do you get to that interpretation? You say, I think in chapter 4, so just if you go to one column over in your English Bible, take a look at chapter 4, verse 7, and we're told here that sin is crouching at the door, and then notice what the writer says. He says, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Can you hear how the words in 4.7 are the same as 3.16 part 2, right? That there's a desire, in this case it is sin's desire to act in a contrary way, 
but the idea then is to rule and master it. So if you apply that back, if that's a legitimate means, back to 3.16, what we have going on here is that all of a sudden you say the, the wife's going to say, I'm going to reject this idea of male headship in the home, that there's going to be tension in that relationship, and the way that the man's going to react to that is in a patriarchal and abusive way. You say, I think that gives us another angle too. You say, how many times you meet a young lady and she says well you know are both the man and the woman they want to get married and a young lady entrusts herself to a man who's generally physically stronger right and is to be the spiritual head she makes herself vulnerable to that man and he dominates her and abuses her and oppresses her you're thinking now say well, we don't have that issue at providence church i mean abuse and oppressive things in in marriage and you say oh yes we do this is a very serious problem Say, if you're in that kind of relationship, you say you're being oppressed and abused, to say there's help, there's the result of the fall. That's an evil thing. But nonetheless, all too common, sad in our world. Say, that's what is the point here. You say, this once intimate relationship where the husband and the wife would thrive together in their God-given roles, now it's loaded with tension and, oppression and, and being opponents. Take a look back at, at 3, 12, and 13. You say, if it wasn't, uh, you know, we would laugh at this, but it's quite serious, you know, because it's so very relevant. But what happens when they transgress? What does Adam say? He says, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. That marriage becomes a blame game. Your opponents, instead of being teammates, right, a complementary relationship where both are built up, it's now marked by selfishness and abuse, patriarchy, opposition, and so forth. And then you can just one chapter later again to go to chapter 4 of Genesis and 19. Very, five very sad, sad words. Genesis 4, 19, just the first five words. A descendant of Adam and Eve, Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. Outside of God's design, now you have polygamy. There's adultery and tension and all kinds of marital problems as a result of the fall. I know many of us in the room, you'd say, if I had to tick a box, you know, I'd say, I have a good marriage. You know, we're both Christians and we're, I think you'd still admit, say, there is much tension in the marriage relationship that we don't get it right. We don't understand our roles. Neither the husband and the wife fulfill our roles as God would want us to do, that we've made a mess of this, that there's tension here. You say, that's a consequence of the fall. Say, marriage is a wonderful gift. You look at your spouse, you're, you're like me, but you're wonderfully different, but there's tension and there's opposition and it's got a, a, a lot of trouble. And you say, that's a consequence of the fall, that we need God's help to point us right again. We now have estrangement in our intimate relationships Secondly, you'll notice another consequence of the fall is that some of the things, actually one of our, those that are our primary things to do are now marked with real trouble. So we go first again to the woman, again back to verse 16. Remember that we're to, as married couples, to bring forth new life, so be fruitful and multiply. Back in chapter 2 and verse 28, say that's God's idea, his realm of bringing a new life, a husband and a wife, that's how you welcome new humans. And of course, we all know, worth saying, that that's, uh, to bring in new human life is something only women can do. For all the talk of the sexes being interchangeable, you say there's a base fact here. They say only one gender can bring in new human life. That all of us were born of a woman. And you know, at the onset of the movement where now the husband can be in the room, I know a few generations ago, dad wasn't in the room when the children were born, but most of us, I think, are in the time where the dad's allowed in the room. And one thing's for sure, you know, 
God was serious about verse 16 of chapter 3, that there's a lot of pain there. Each one of us came into the world through the pain of our moms. I remember when Mallory had our first son, Graham, that I wanted to call my own mother and just say thank you. I had no idea what you did for me. (laughs) And it's not just birth. We say, well, I know birth is painful, but actually I like the way that my ESV, it says really childbearing. That of course it's not just the birth event, but it's the nine months before that. To say how the mom cares for that other child, to have another person inside you. You say, it's a wonderful gift, isn't it? But also you say, boy, is it hard. So the sacrifices a mom makes, and then I think even with childbearing and childbirth, then you have those first years of life where the child is completely dependent upon who? Upon the mother. Yeah, it's a wonderful gift to be a parent. Be fruitful and multiply, but that, that great privilege now is marked with pain and trouble and a lot of difficulty. So that's a consequence of the fall. A primary thing we're to do and we must keep doing is not as God set it up, but a bit off. And then of course, what about work? Remember we had to talk about stewardship, that we all work, that we wanna make a contribution to where we're at in life, that we wanna participate and feel the so-called sweat of our brow and to say yeah, a degree of satisfaction, that that's before the fall, that work's not uh, a consequence of the fall, but before the fall, but what is a consequence of the fall is how all of our work becomes toil. You know, I'm struck by how few of us have perfectly healthy relationships with our work. It doesn't take long sometimes. I'll just be in a casual conversation and say, here we go again about work trouble. On the one hand, you can look at, say, something like stress. So you see what's happening with stress statistics about how many of us carry home problems and obligations from work and we're now, you know, with our phones and our computers, you say it's not just, you know, eight to five, but that that spills over into the evening. We're up late cranking out emails or somebody wants to get a hold of us. You say it kind of be perpetual. You get, a, you know, seven hours of sleep and then here we go again, say, oh, we're stressed out. Say it costs the economy a lot and it's taking a toll on our health because we don't have a right relationship with our work. Others, you say, we've made work too important. You say, well, I know it's a good thing, but it's become everything. You say, my very identity. I don't know what would happen if I lose my job. We become completely absorbed. We come into workaholism. You say, it's very dangerous. Or the other extreme of that, that we don't take work serious enough and we fall into laziness. And then you have what we might call toxic work environments, you know, where uh, you come in and it feels like an episode of Survivor and you just hate going in every day because people are gossiping and all kinds of problems at work. So that's not as God designed it. So he wanted us to make a contribution, to have a healthy perspective of work, but not in our world today. That where we're to make our biggest contribution has become a big point of being unhealthy and disgruntled. So the blessings that God designed are now touched with physical pain, with anguish, and psychological problems as well. Now, moving forward, I'd say creation itself in the curse. This comes in chapter 3, verse 17, right? This little line that cursed is the ground because of you. That it's as if the created order itself begins to go off kilter. You say, now I think you ask questions like, well, what about these terrible diseases that are passed down in the human line? You know, that these kind of genetic problems that we have. I would say it's accumulation of sinful behavior of humans. We don't really say, I don't know if something like a tsunami would be 
uh, moral evil in itself, right? The reason why we think of things like tsunamis as moral evils is because they wipe out whole, whole civilizations. And you say, well, that couldn't have been part of God's good design. And so I think there's a, a point here to be made that nature, nature itself began to go off kilter when God's creation, the crown of his creation, rejected him. And the cumulative nature of our sin has caused the natural world itself to become a very harsh mistress indeed. And we long, if you turn to Romans chapter 8, you can read it this week, but Paul goes on about this for some verses. He says, creation itself groans. It says, at the natural order, while we still are able to see the beauties of the natural order, and we've, God's given us the gift of mathematics and science, that we have things like diseases and natural disasters, and we say, God, it's, it's as if you know, something's a little off here. Will you please put it right? It's as if we're, we're all enslaved. Nature itself is enslaved. That's because the ground itself has been cursed, because we pumped our fist at God. You say, look at what's happened. Marriage, the gift of companionship, has been turned into a competition. The tasks we've been given to do that were to be pleasurable and joyful are now marked with pain and stress. And the created order that we were to delight in, and to some degree still do, is not as it ought to be. And that explained the world well. And now you say, well, most formidably, is that as a consequence of our rebellion that we now face death. You remember back in chapter 2, verse 17, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That God, as plain as could be, to say, if you transgress in this way, that humans will die. Now, what does this mean? Say, on the one sense, it, it certainly means uh, a new relationship with physical death. Whether or not humans originally were to die and be in glory is a big, you know, a big controversy with, among theologians, but you say what really does happen is that we now start to fear death, physical death. We've done everything. We've done everything we possibly can with our mind to avoid thinking about death, to prolong life, to mitigate pain. Thank goodness that we've been able to do a little bit of that, but yet still we all know, say we're all going to die. Say it's the saying, right? We all know we're going to die. We just don't think it's going to be today. But the question is, what does cause a person to think about death? You know, in the old days, if you, you know, around England and go to the old parish churches, you say you can't get into the church without going through the cemetery. That was designed strategically, right? So you'd be going into church one week and you say, oh, look, there's Robert down there. We remember when Robert was in our assembly, but not now. Robert's remains are six feet down. There's Emma over there. Remember when she used to be? And you say that was to make the mind aware of reality that I too am going to have my day. When I first started to go to the men's ministry in my own old church, I had never heard this saying before, but I'd say, oh, so-and-so, good to see you. And they'd respond, well, better to be seen than viewed. And I'd say, well, that's right. We're all going to be viewed one day. That our day will come in that question, right? As much as we try to avoid it, stay busy, stay busy at work with our smartphones, diversions, a great, another great concept of Pascal. We just, you know, if we can be diverted enough, then we don't need to think about that. But it still comes to say, where am I going to go when I die? Am I a little bit scared about that? Is it as the moderns say, well, you don't need to worry about it. It's just going to be like before you're born. You know, it's, it's nothing. Or is there something to it? I am a little scared of death. You know, I've done a great disservice, I think, early on in ministry, a lot of Protestant clergy, I think, started talking about when someone in the assembly dies, 
that you do a celebration of life. Maybe you've heard that phrase. You say, well, I think that's really good. You know, here's, here's someone who was a great saint and we, we, we celebrate uh, that person being in glory. There is truth in that. But I think what I did is I went so hard down that path that I neglected the very real truth of the grief. So when your loved one dies, your parent, your child, some of you had, say there's a lot of grief and pain. Can we see that relationship with death as not being a part of God's good design, but actually a consequence of the fall, that physical death, no matter what we try to do, prolong life a little bit more. Can we move that life expectancy back? It's coming. Do we have a plan? Are we scared? So we need to answer that question. But also, because Adam and Eve don't die physically on the spot, we have to see that this too means a spiritual death, that all of us have died spiritually that we have an emptiness in us. So immediately when Adam and Eve transgress, notice what they feel. They feel shame and embarrassment and the need to hide. And say, that too is every person. Say, oh, if everybody knew me as I really am, say, I have a, a hole. It's as if I'm, I, I'm, I'm lost. I, I need to have something else uh, to fill that hole. Say, that's what we mean by spiritual death. Say, all of us, yeah, before we're converted to Christ, we say, yeah, we're alive in the biological sense, but we're walking dead men, walking dead people. Say, I feel empty, trying to make my own way, comparing myself to others, whatever it would be, but I have a deep emptiness inside. That's the shame, that part of it. So we all experience now physical death in a way that scares us and estranges us, but also a spiritual death where we're empty. That's a consequence of the first human rebellion. Now, one more move I want to make here. See, everything that God set up as being good and right and our being in relationship with him has now gone terribly wrong and has gone wobbly. And here's the key now for us today. So we've all been infected by sin and the consequences of our sin. See, so it's as if all of us, we could talk about Adam and Eve as being, Adam and Eve being the, the first couple, the representative couple, we could say the federal head of the human race. Some would say with St. Augustine, in a way, when Adam transgressed, we were all there because he's our first father. It's as if some would say, Augustine would say, we were seminally present. We were somehow in Adam. So when Adam fell, we all fell, and we've all inherited that disease. Never in my life, maybe yours too, in the last eight months, you say we've been studying the transmission of disease, have we not? Say how it spreads, how it infects, where it moves. And you say, well, whatever we make of COVID-19, you say this, the, the sin disease is universal, that we've all got it, we've inherited it from our parents. And what is it you say it is? Precisely a hostility towards God, that we come into the world, we say DOA, dead on arrival. That I don't come into the world loving God and wanting to surrender to Christ, but rather I come into the world thinking, I'm gonna do it myself. Say all of our children, right? What are their first words? Self, me, I. Say, that's very indicative of what we read in Genesis 1 to 3. I'll do it myself. I'll define right and wrong, that we've all been infected. Take, for example, what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, right? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because we all sinned. Paul's saying there's a disease of selfishness and rebellion against God, and it's infected every one of us, 
And we're all prey to these areas. That's why there's tension in our intimate relationships. While we don't have a healthy relationship with our work, while it's hard to raise children, and we have a, we're a little bit scared of physical death, and we've all experienced spiritual death, say all that because we've all been infected by sin. And you ask this question, I think it was Chesterton, the, the Catholic theologian, he said, why is it that the doctrine of, the, of sin is the most empirically verifiable, but also the most resisted? Say, Chesterton says, all you need to do is just spend a few minutes thinking about your own life or looking around the world. You say, yeah, we've all, we've made a mess of things. And yet we resist that because of our pride. I don't want to admit I'm part of the problem. You say, it's all the problem of the politicians. I mean, look at what's happening with this. I'm not the problem. Until you look in your heart, say, I've rebelled against God, then I need help. And what we're talking about here, ladies and gentlemen, is not what I would call um, little mistakes some say well yeah everybody makes mistakes yeah nobody's perfect is that what we're talking about no so we're talking about something much more serious that is the infection of kicking god out of not loving god not loving our creator not wanting to be accountable to him and i like this saying maybe you've heard it before i think it's a very profound theological utterance we're not sinners because we sin but we sin because we're sinners. Have you ever heard that? We're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. You say, what does that mean? It's not that I'm going around making little mistakes and therefore I guess, well, I guess I've fallen short of God's perfection, but rather I, everything's wrong in, in my life and in my works precisely because at my core, I'm a corrupted and infected individual that I don't love God. And you say, look at, notice how sin, that word, again, I think this is why sometimes a lot of young people are put off by the church because they think, well, you know, you need some, some holy man to tell you, oh, look, you were out of bounds there. Look, you made a mistake. So that's a pretty big oops. You're a sinner. You say, that's not the biblical understanding of sin. But rather, each of us have gone our own way. And then I'm in rebellion against God. And look at how sin functions in the Bible. Again, look at that verse 4, 7. You say, sin is a noun that takes verbs. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. You see how sin is a noun. It's a force that's gonna come in and on your life, that it's gonna overtake your life. If you read again this week, something like Romans chapter seven, look at how Paul uses sin. It's not, oops, we made mistakes, but it's here comes sin. It's infected your life. And if you're not careful, say it'll ruin you. It'll take you down. It's, it strives to separate you from God. That's the understanding of sin. It's an infection, a force, something that annihilates and separates and makes us feel empty and away from God. And just a few chapters later, look at how the Bible talks to Genesis 6, 5. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Or Genesis 8, 21. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So again, Bible's not here talking about mistakes. It's talking about the universal infection of the human race for us not to pay attention to God. And as a consequence, right, we have great turmoil in our lives, especially in those areas most precious to us. So you say this is a very dark chapter, actually, that the way that we were set up to be with God is long gone, that everything precious has now been marred by sin. Where do we go from here? And I think that's a very good question. Say, why doesn't God just wipe us out at this point in history. So you ask that. And while this question, this chapter is very dark, it's also one of the most merciful. And thankfully, that's where we get to go now. Did you catch how God reacts to all this? Sometimes this has been called a merciful chastisement, 
of the human race. Again, you must be, in one side, you say you must be so angry if you're God. He's the just judge. You say, I made all this creation. I've given you everything, right? Everything you need to prosper and to flourish. And we've clenched our fist and say, God's the rightful judge, and he must judge. But he meets us with mercy and grace. And that comes in chapter 3, verse 15. Say the promise to Satan, right? So Satan is going to struggle against the human race for all time. But then in the second part of verse 15, right, that there's going to be enmity between the, the offspring of Satan and the woman's offspring, and then he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see that little clause? Say, what's this talking about? That there's going to be a seed of the woman, so that is someone born of a woman who's going to be inflicted with some pain by Satan. That's the bruising of the heel. But that seed of the woman is going to conquer the great powers of evil and darkness. And see, Genesis 3.15, I think rightfully is be called the first mention of the good news of Jesus. Then in the midst of this terrible chapter of anguish and pain and stress and all the things we've been talking about so far, God says there's a promise. There's a promise of your redemption in the line of the woman that I'm going to put forth someone in human likeness who's going to trample Satan's head. Yeah, there's going to be damage on that figure, i.e. the cross, but he's ultimately going to be victorious. You know, another profound thing about this, when Adam and Eve, Eve transgress, you notice how God always initiates. Say, it's Adam and Eve who try to hide, right? That they scurry off and try to hide behind God, the things that God made for them, that they want to hide in their shape. What does God do? He comes down and walks in the garden among them. He asks them questions. He initiates with questions so that they might confess and come back to him. He then, in verse 21 of chapter 3, notice what does God do? He made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. It's a very interesting thing. Why does God do this? In other words, there's a sacrifice. There's a sacrifice to clothe Adam and Eve, to cover them in their shame, to absorb their shame, to put them right. He initiates. He does it all. You say, right when they're cut off from the tree of life, you say another interesting turn of phrase, you say, well, why are they cut off from the tree of life? Because they've rebelled against God and they deserve judgment and God's the just judge. You say, I like here how it's called the tree of life. Because then again, we go to our New Testaments. You say, you know what so many of the New Testament writers call the cross? You say, I have them listed there in the notes. You say, Paul and Luke and Acts commonly refer to the cross as that of the tree. That the tree of life really is the tree on which Jesus was hung. So yeah, we've all been cut off from the tree of life in our rebellion because we made a mess of things, yet God put forth Jesus on the real tree of life so we can be restored. Even as we've marred all of these relationships, that we've made a mess of things, that we can be put right. right? God fulfilled his promise of Genesis 3.15, the whole arc of history. There's going to be one born of a woman who's going to be put forth, right? Who's going to crush Satan. If you trust him and come to him, then you say, that's the real tree of life. And I'll leave you with this as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. You say, really, what the Bible's saying is that all of us have been brought down in Adam. Say, all of us have been infected with that disease and we commit those transgressions. We've all been brought down by Adam, but all those who are in Christ are raised back up. Say, what did Satan say to Adam and Eve? He said, take and eat. And we took and we ate 
and we rebelled against God unto death. And Jesus was put forth on the cross. And at the Lord's Supper, what does he say? Take and eat of me unto life. And so that's the choice each one of us have. I can keep going as I'm going, plowing through in my own infected condition, taking and eating whatever I want, being a law unto myself, uh, unto myself and unto death. Or I can take and eat of Jesus who restores me and renews me and puts me on the right path and gives me a hope to be with him in the end. See, that's the promise we have. And so what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna pray over this passage and then Ian and Jonathan will come back up and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together as a commemoration of God putting forth Jesus, putting things right with the promise of one day all these areas being back to where they are meant to be. So I'll pray and the team will come forward. Father, we notice in our own lives and others in the natural world, basically every place we can contemplate, we see the great good. We still see the good in your creation, but we also see how it's been so infected with sin. And I hope that we see not only does this make sense of the world in which we're in, but also why we would need to long for a redeemer to say it's not gonna be clear why we call Jesus the savior if we don't see why we need saved. We need saved from ourselves and from our rebellion that we've entered in the world not wanting to draw near to you, certainly not wanting to be accountable to you, and consequently, say we perpetuate these problems in our marriages and at our work and with the natural world and our relationship towards uh, the spiritual life, and on and on it goes. But, Lord, I pray that we see today you've initiated. You've kept your promise. You put forth Jesus on the tree of life, that we celebrate that redemption today, the hope that we have even in a broken and fallen world. May we continue to represent you well, point people to you, Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we get specific instructions um, from the Lord Jesus that on the night he was betrayed that he gathered his disciples around. And he said, what I'd like all my followers to do with regularity is that I want them to commemorate what I did for them on the cross. And if you read the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I always think there are four words to prepare us for this time. The first thing we want to do is to confess our sins. See, none of us this past week have done exactly as we should have done. We probably, there were things that we could have done that we failed to do. And so we look down and say, Lord Jesus, I've fallen short of your mark. That these consequences of the fall that we talked about today, say they've been all too real in my life this week that I've committed those. And in that vein, to say, if you're not a Christian... You don't want to take the Lord's Supper if you've not entrusted your life to Jesus and recognize that he's the one in whom we're redeemed and he's the one in whom we have hope, then don't take the Lord's Supper. This is something that Christians do to remember what Jesus has done as we confess our sins before him. Say, so we also want to look back, back to the events of the cross. Can you see his body bloodied and beaten there for you? To say, that's the place that I deserve, that say, I deserve to be on... I deserve God's wrath, but rather that was poured out on Jesus for me. That I see something in Jesus and all the clutter and all that's going on, I see something in Jesus and what he did on the cross that that was done for me. There was, a, as Luther would say, a great exchange there for me and I'm thankful to Jesus for what he did. I also want to look around to my brothers and my sisters that God's called this local church family to be in this time and this place for a short time. How do we build each other up in this truth? Isn't this all that matters? How do we do it well with the short time that we have? And also to think outward. 
that we want to proclaim this to others, Paul says. How do we live out the message that we've been bought back? Yes, there's a big problem in the world, right, that we call it sin, but we've been redeemed by Jesus, and everyone needs that. How do we live it out? So once again, we look in and confess. We look back to Jesus and what he did. We look around at the church family God's given us, and we look out to proclaim who he is. In that sense, if you take the elements, as I hope you got on the way in, and there's a top tab. If you peel back the top tab, you can take out the wafer. So on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the loaf of bread and he broke it, And when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of Jesus. We can sing the hymn and I'll be back up for the cup.